0: I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. I'm going to be looking at verses 1 through 7 today. We have seen the verses that spoke of the advent of Christ, of the coming of John the Baptist as well, the joy that attended, the revelation that Christ would be the Savior of his people, that John would be the prophet who went before him. And now, as we continue on in Luke, we've come to the point of Christ's birth and the circumstances under which it occurred. And it behooves us to think about the importance of this event, how massively important it was, how, how changed the world is because of it, and how we have been redeemed specifically because of this event in time. Let's, before we turn our attention though to the word, let's go to the God who gave it to us in the first place and let's ask for his blessing. Oh God, our Father, Lord, without your help, who can preach the word? Unless we know the power of it, Lord, how can we divide it aright? I do pray, Lord, that you would help me, therefore, uh, for I feel very weak. I fear I am perhaps coming down with something, but I know, oh Lord, you can take even the weakest of vessels and you can use them to do your will. And I do pray, Lord, therefore, for liberty and unction, that you would open my mouth to speak your praises, Lord, and to tell your people the good news of the gospel. We remember that this is not simply historical data. These are not simply things that happened long ago, but rather these are things of pressing importance to us today. Lord, it was this event, the coming of your son Jesus into the world, that changed everything, that changed our destiny. If it had not happened, surely we would have all gone to hell so I pray, O oh Lord, that you would help us to fix our attention upon your word and to once again wonder at what you have done for your people. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen and amen. Luke chapter 2 and verse 1. I remind you, this is the word of the Lord. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place where, uh, while Quirinus was governing Syria. And wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now there, oh I'm so sorry, that's uh, (laughs) the grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our Lord will last forever. Since the uh, launch of the Hubble telescope, our ability to peer into the universe and to see the wonders of God's creation has been massively extended, it really was a blessing to astronomy and to science. Uh, Scientists now estimate, based upon what they can see, that there are at least around a hundred billion galaxies in the universe, a massive number. And it's uh, worth our consideration that despite that, a hundred billion galaxies in the universe. that year after year, the Earth keeps winning the Miss Universe competition. I mean, think about it. Uh, Now, I I bring that up, that that silly point, Uh, and how silly it is to call one woman uh, on Earth, uh, whom I seriously doubt anybody here could name, Miss Universe, as though she was the most important woman in the midst of it. And yet, have you ever thought as you read the birth narrative, as you read about the coming of Jesus Christ, that you are actually reading about the incarnation of of the person who was certifiably, verifiably, definitely the most important person who ever lived, and that is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. Strangely, when we think about it, despite the fact that the most important person in the entire universe, and prior to that, beyond the universe, At the time that he was born, the world did not know it. They did not recognize how monumental what had just taken place was at the beginning of the first century AD. The world knew who they thought was the most important person on the face of the planet. If you were in the Mediterranean world, you thought that that person was Caesar Augustus or Octavian, the emperor of the mighty Roman Empire, a man who commanded the the vast majority of the world's populace in that area. He was the ruler of the known world. That's how he styled himself. And when he spoke, people either listened or they rapidly found themselves in a world of hurt. He had such power on earth. So when Augustus Uh, who had finally brought peace to the lands under Roman rule, decreed that there was to be a census of the peoples in his dominion in the lands that he governed and ruled over. Let's face it, uh, that was virtually the entire Western world at the time. People did not object to what he had said. They did not ask questions. They did not talk back. They simply complied. The census was taken not because uh, Augustus had an avid interest in, in demographic information, the census was taken for the same reason that censuses has, have always been taken and uh, believe it or not it's the same reason that we take censuses in the United States in order to be able to tax more effectively. He wanted to be able to tax the known world under his control. The cost of governing the known world and supporting his legions was enormous and so the revenue that had to be raised from the empire also had to be enormous and he had to know basic information like how many Many people lived there, uh, although typically only adult males were actually counted. Now, the Romans uh, called these censuses from time to time in order to update their records. The last census that Augustus had ordered was in 28 BC, so it was high time for a new one. The rules of the census, as we read in Luke's account, and I, I hope you, as you're going through Luke, you see what a wonderful historian he was. He gives us names, he gives us dates, he gives us places. They obviously were things that captivated him and also things that he wanted to mark so that people would be able to, to put these events that occurred in their proper setting geographically and also their proper setting in history. Well, the rules were, according to the Roman Empire, when a census was called, you had to ret- to your ancestral home. You had to return to the place where your family was from in order to be registered. So, in order to comply, a carpenter by the name of Joseph was compelled to take his very pregnant wife on the arduous trek from Nazareth in Galilee, which was in the north of Israel. He had to take her to the midpoint in Israel by Jerusalem to a town called Bethlehem, the ancestral home of the people of Judah. You see, Joseph was, like Mary his wife, he was a descendant of King David, and he uh, was descended from that, that great king who had ruled a thousand years before, and so he went back to the ancestral town of King David the house of Bethlehem, the house of bread. That's what Bethlehem means, literally, house of bread. So everyone in that particular Jewish clan, including Joseph, was compelled to leave their present places of residence and return to Bethlehem in order to register themselves that they might be more effectively taxed, which, as you can guess, left the town excessively crowded. You had all these sons of Judah streaming back into Bethlehem, and so finding a place to stay was very difficult. Now when this particular census took place in the year is hotly debated uh, in, but it's uncertain. it is highly unlikely I hate to say this I know we all like to conceive of you know mountains of snow and presents and things like that uh, uh, at this particular time and and, and camels standing around uh, the, the manger in the winter uh, you know this, this setting uh, but it is highly unlikely that the Romans would have called for a census in the dead of winter. It would have been the first time they had ever done so, and they didn't call censuses for in the winter for good reason. The days, as you know, in the winter are the shortest, so they afforded you the least time to travel. Uh, you faced a food scarcity at that point in time. And it was very difficult, therefore, to burn all of those calories in traveling and carrying food with you. The weather also, as you know, during the winter, is Terrible. It's very cold. And for a lot of the populace and the people who were called upon to count the people who were coming for the census, the order to travel at that time might have been a death sentence. So, as a result, as a general rule, people did not travel much in the dead of winter in, in Rome. So, it's highly unlikely that the choice of December the 25th, that was made by the church in the fourth century, uh, was the actual date of the birth of Christ. I hope I'm not bursting any balloons uh, in saying that. Um, Uh, Probably the choice of the date had more to do with displacing the pagan holiday of the Saturnalia, which occurred at the winter solstice. Uh, It actually probably happened this, this census sometime around April. That would have made a lot more sense. But when in the year this actually took place is far less important than the simple fact, brothers and sisters, friends, that it actually happened. It happened at a point in history. A census was called, the people returned, Joseph went back to Bethlehem, and it occurred at God's perfect appointed time, in the fullness of time, as Paul puts it. Now, uh, of all the thoughts that Caesar or the world might have had around this census, I think it is safe to say that the last thing that, that would have uh, occurred to them is that the real reason that the census was occurring was that a lowly carpenter in Nazareth uh, might be able to take his pregnant wife Mary from Nazareth to the town of uh, Bethlehem. Uh, but the grand schemes of Caesar were not the reason why these events were occurring. It was actually the fact that the census occurred in order to bring Jesus into the world in Bethlehem, in the place that had been prophesied, the ancestral house of Judah, that was where the Lion of the Tribe of Judah would be born. Hundreds of years before, the uh, the prophet Micah had foretold that this Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Savior of His people, would be built, born in Bethlehem. We read in Micah three two, and I would encourage you to turn back in your Bibles to Micah five two. I'm sorry, not three two. Micah five two. <laughs> Dum, dum. I have fumbled fingers. We read in Micah five two, but you Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one. To be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Now, who is this whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting? Uh, that is not David, of course. And certainly it's no other mortal king. Only God is eternal, only God is everlasting. And this prophecy stated that not only would the Messiah be born in Bethlehem, but that the Messiah would be Emmanuel, God with us. This Messiah who was born in this town that people barely paid attention to was going to be God incarnate. Now, you see, when the time had fully come, Caesar Augustus decreed his census because it was the decree of God that he should do so. Not so that the ends of Caesar would be achieved, but so that the divine purpose of God Almighty would be brought to pass. And the entire world, you remember at this time, is looking to Caesar, looking at his census, they're scurrying about, they're, they're trying to obey his command, when in fact the most important event in history, in the history of the world, is taking place in a stable in a town that most people did not even know existed. And the very idea that the the most important person on earth was not the portly toga-clad gentleman uh, who dwelt in Caesar's palace and sat on the throne there, uh, that he was in fact a baby born into abject poverty, whose first bed, note this, was a food trough for animals. That, of course, is what a manger was. It would have seemed absurd, absolutely absurd to most people. And yet, at the time that anyone proposing it, uh, it, it said that, that the most important person of the world in the world has been born in Palestine, they've laid him in a food trough, uh, they would have been called a lunatic by the world. And yet that was. and brothers and sisters, it is the truth the most important person in the entire universe, came into the universe and was barely noticed. And he was born under such humble circumstances. He who was served by the angels became a servant for us. He took to himself a true body and a reasonable soul, and he was not born in a palace. He was born in a stable history, this reminds us, brothers and sisters, is not important because it's the setting for censuses and taxes and wars and all the things that people think are so important. Its primary importance is as the backdrop for God's work of redemption. It's what God is doing that is most important to us. And the people and the events that the world is so preoccupied with are not nearly so important as we think. In fact, their real value can be calculated insofar as they are connected. I mean, think about this. Everything that has happened, uh, its importance can be judged by how it is connected to the baby born in Bethlehem. And in the end, that will be the only fact that really matters. And certainly to all of us, that birth of that particular baby will be the most important thing in your life. Whether or not you are connected to him or not will determine where you spend eternity. Think about that. Now, the Caesars thought they were establishing an empire that would serve their ends, glorify their names, when in fact God was using them to bring about the establishing of his own divine kingdom. Caesar was just a bit player in what God was actually doing at this point. You can actually see that if you turn in your Bibles once again uh, into the Old Testament at Daniel chapter 2. Now, you remember Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, he had a dream about a statue made of different materials. Nobody could interpret it except Daniel, who was given the interpretation. And the amazing thing is this dream that was had 500 years before the coming of Jesus Christ spoke of his kingdom. If we return to Daniel chapter 2 and then start reading in verse 31, we read, You, O king, were watching, and behold a great image, this great image whose splendor was excellent, stood before you. And its form was awesome. The image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found, and the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the dream. Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. You, O king, are a king of kings, for the God of heaven has given you a kingdom and power and strength and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell or the beasts of the field and the birds of heaven, he has given them into your hand and has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold, but after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours, then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. Whereas you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. And as much as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is certain. Now, brothers and sisters, that rock that was cut out, that grew and filled the world and became a mountain. That rock, of course, was the rock of our salvation. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the kingdom that crushes and replaces all the others is his kingdom, the kingdom that will have no end. Now, if you had said to somebody that the kingdom that will have no end, that will crush all the others, is going to start in a backwater of the Roman Empire and a man born in a stable a man born of a lowly maid servant, a man born of a family scurrying to fulfill Caesar's census wishes, he will be the head of that kingdom forever and ever. If you had told them that, again, they would have said, you are crazy. But that is the truth. The other kingdoms would become as nothing compared to the kingdom of God, and ultimately all of them will serve the purposes of, Of that great king and ruler, try as they might, they will end up doing his will. Think about it. Alexander the Great, over 300 years before, had conquered most of the Mediterranean world. And in ruling that area, he had desired that they would have one common Hellenic language, one Greek language. But in doing so, he provided the Mediterranean world, with a Koine Greek, a common language, a common Greek, that would allow them to write the Bible. That was the reason why Alexander was given his dominion, that he would be able to advance the gospel interests. And of course, Koine Greek became not just the common language of commerce in that area, it provided that language by which the disciples could write the gospel message, and it could be read in Syria, it could be read in Israel, it could be read in Rome, and throughout the Roman world, wherever Greek was spoken, you could hear the gospel. The Romans, they come in, and they unite the world, and they build these amazing roads. It is fascinating. Uh, When I was in Greek, uh, uh, when I was in Greek, When I was in Greek in seminary, it was a terrible experience. But while I was in Greece, uh, traveling there, we uh, had the opportunity to see some of these Roman roads that still exist. And by comparison to the modern Greek roads, they were in some cases a lot better Brothers and sisters, the reason those roads were built, the reason why commerce was established, the reason why pirates in the Mediterranean were put down, the reason why bandits were rounded up and either killed or sold as slaves was so that the gospel written in Koine Greek could freely travel from place to place so that a man named Paul could go to places like Philippi and Corinth and Ephesus and preach the gospel freely. All of those things took place so that the gospel could go, as Jesus would command, to the ends of the earth. Even the latter persecution of of Christians that occurred under the Romans would only serve to strengthen their faith. And as the Christians were, were persecuted, what did they do? They were scattered. It stopped them from all consolidating in one place. They went about, as the Greek puts it, gossiping the gospel wherever they went. No matter how the world, the flesh, and the devil tried to stop the gospel message from spreading, it spread because it was God's will that this would happen. The Romans viewed the Christians with contempt, and yet, ultimately, Christianity conquered the empire, not vice versa. It was an amazing event, a miraculous event, something that could only happen because God willed that it would. The disdain that the world has for Christianity today, uh, I think in the United States at least, it's never been greater. And yet, this is the empire that will outlive even America. If Christ does not return, we know that the kingdom will continue on and that it will eventually supersede, overcome, and crush all of the empires of men. All of the isms that are so important to us today, all of our politics, identity, and so on, ultimately will be as nothing compared to what God is doing in establishing his kingdom, establishing his king in accordance with his prophecies. And yet, We think about that. We think about the way that Daniel was given this prophecy that went through uh, a pagan king, the king of Babylon and so on. We think about the way that prophets uh, hundreds of years before the coming of Christ were given this important news. And then we think that there isn't even room for Christ in the local caravan stop when his parents go back to their, their birthplace. So he is born where animals are kept and laid in a food trough. Now, just one, and this is just a technical note. While I'm on the subject of of uh, Jesus, uh, the Son of Mary, and of course the Son of God, just a quick note on this text. You remember we read in verse seven that she brought forth her firstborn son. Scripture clearly tells us that Jesus was the Son of God, not the Son of Joseph. But also, Scripture tells us that Joseph and Mary did, in fact, have children together. Jesus was Mary's firstborn. The Greek word there is prototokos, and it implies that there were more children that followed afterwards. Jesus had brothers and sisters, and they are mentioned in Matthew 13, John 7, and Galatians 1. So the, the myth of Mary's uh, perpetual virginity, which was spread by the Roman Catholic Church, it's not born out in Scripture. After the birth of Jesus, Joseph and Mary had a normal relationship. They were man and wife. There was nothing wrong, nothing sinful in their having other children. So that just a, a note. But in any event, the application of all of this is obvious. The world looks at earthly kings, earthly events, and it sees them uh, as very important. When we have world leaders meeting, for instance, uh, in uh, the, the Middle East, in the, the home of fossil fuels, to discuss renewable energy and to set the agenda of the world and to decide how many bugs you and I are going to eat and what, what shape the pod that we live in will be and things like that. That's what it views as important. These are the really important things. The guys who fly to these conferences about renewable energy and Learjets. They're the important people. We know that, right? But why does the world think that way? The world thinks that way because the devil has a vested interest in convincing the world to this day that you shall be as gods, that you are the most important, that they, that these people who are focused on by the media... The father of lies has a vested interest in deceiving you into thinking that you're supposed to be dwelling upon them 24 by 7. That Taylor Swift really is the most important person in the United States and that rather than being a Christian, we're all supposed to be Swifties. But as we meditate upon those things, those trivialities, really, that the world wants us to focus on. What is happening? Our attention is being shifted away from the most important person in the universe, our attention is being shifted away from what the world at one time used to realize was most important. This country was founded by people who desired to worship him in the way that he said in his word. That's how important it was. They were willing to risk their lives to travel over three weeks on an ocean that was uh, known for its tempest that could have killed them in an instant, but they wanted to worship him and to make him known. At one time, believe it or not, we had the right perspective. We understood that life was fleeting. We understood that our connection to the baby born in Bethlehem was the most important fact of our lives. And that making him known was what we were created for and worshiping him was our destiny. What did they think? Christians knew The people of this nation at one time, the vast majority of them, understood that even if they weren't running the race particularly well, that their calling was to run that race, was to look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of their faith. And as a result, they didn't want to keep the gospel to themselves. They wanted to share the greatest truth. They wanted to share the most important person in the entire universe with the world And so, therefore, this country became the greatest missionary-sending nation that the world knew at one time, bringing the gospel to places like China, and where I visit on a regular basis, East Africa, Uganda. The fact that there are Christians there are because people recognized how important Jesus was and were willing to lay down their lives. They used to go to the foreign mission field with their coffins. They used to know that they likely were not going to be able to to return. Lottie Moon, the famous Baptist missionary uh, woman, she had to sign a contract saying that she would not return from the field in China unless she died or had a complete breakdown. By God's grace, she did not have a complete breakdown, but she spent the vast majority of her life ministering in that nation, bringing the gospel message to a lost people. But how about you? All right, we've discussed Jesus. We've discussed his coming into the world. We've discussed how important it was. We've discussed the fact that people used to understand that and used to make that the center of their lives instead of all the triviality and so on that occupies our attention. TikTok dances. People live for TikTok dances today, not for Christ. But what about you? What is at the center of your universe? Where is your attention focused? Is it on the incidentals of this life? Do you strive? Do you think to yourself, I want to be like one of those people I read about or those people that I, I see on television. I want to be one of the important people. I want my own Learjet. I want to be able to go to conferences and have people listen to me. I want to be rich. I want to be famous. I want to be, I want to be powerful. Or are your desires perhaps more parochial or they, I just want to be able to to do my my hobbies. I know people whose entire reason for being as they define it is to follow a little white ball around a, a course on a regular basis. And when they, finally they reach the little white ball, what do they do? They hit it. And then they follow it again. And then they hit it and follow it again. That's their entire life. They center themselves on that. And as a result, they don't have time because they're following the little white ball for anything else, including the baby born in Bethlehem. Norval uh, gildenhees now well, there's a word, Norval Gildenhees had a very profound insight into these verses that we just read. He pointed this out. He said, what the inhabitants of Bethlehem did in their ignorance is done by many today in willful indifference. They refuse to make room for the Son of God. They give no place to Him in their feelings, their affections, their thoughts, their views of life, their wishes, their decisions, their actions, or their daily conduct. And thus they deny themselves the greatest privilege of all and incur the greatest loss of their lives. Have you ever thought about that? That those who do not know Christ are missing everything. They're missing out on eternity. They have misunderstood their reason for being. And where they are headed is nowhere good. Now, it's sad when worldlings do that, but it is, it is even sadder when Christians do. When those who are born in Christian families, for instance, decide that the person who was at the center of their parents' life and their family life when they were growing up, they're going to move him to a little shed in the backyard. Think about it. The king of kings, the lord of the universe, and we subjugate him to to hobbies, to movies, to... Vain pursuits that cannot help us. The creator of the universe came into the world. He was born not in a palace. He was born in a stable. He was born under the law. He underwent rejection and torture and death. Why did he do that? So that you, sinners, might be saved from an eternity in hell. That is why he did this. And then, in spite of that, we move him so to speak, back into the stables and in his place we raise up a bunch of petty idols that cannot help us at all. That is a tragedy. I pray that that is not the case with any of you. I pray that you understand who the most important person in the universe is and always will be. And I pray that because of that, Christ will not take second place in your heart or third place or fourth place, but that he will always have the predominance It should be the case that you can turn to your spouse in truth and say, Honey, you'll always be second in my heart because Christ is always going to be first. And to know that if he is first, you have nothing to fear. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have come to him by faith, if you are looking to him as your Lord and Savior, although the world may have nothing but disdain for you, know this. You have nothing to fear from anything to come, and you have everything to look forward to. You are receiving and have received the most important present that everybody will be given. It is not an air fryer, as wonderful as those things are. The most important present that anyone can receive is the gift of eternal life, and that comes only through knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. So I hope that as the year ends, you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior and you have not allowed anything to take the place that should be his by right in your heart. If that is not the case, there is still time. It's only December 17th. You can still, before the end of the year, close with the Lord Jesus Christ, and you're still alive, so there is yet time to do so. Let me, therefore, lead us in prayer before him now. God, our Father, we thank you so much that you didn't leave us. You sent your son Jesus into the world for our sakes to suffer the worst humiliation conceivable and then to have your wrath poured out on him. Lord, it, it should boggle our minds. It should bring us to our knees when we think about it, that he endured the suffering that our sins procured. Lord, thank you. Thank you for loving us so much that you were willing to part with the one who is most precious to you, your son and to allow him to endure more than we can possibly ever conceive for our sakes. Thank you for the great gift of your Son, Christ, and for the faith that unites us to him. Lord, we pray with that Father so long ago. Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. Help us in this coming year to spread his good news and to tell people who the most important person in the universe truly is. We pray this in Jesus'